how many of y'all have had a bad day before? Woo! And I'm not talking about one of those days in which, you know, I stub my toe kind of days. I'm talking about one of those days in which everything is just going wrong and you just want to escape from life a little bit. Let me tell you about my bad day. Uh, my day, uh, bad day happened last Christmas, actually right before Christmas. Uh, I took my three oldest kids to go see the latest Star Wars movie, and we're sitting in the Silsby Pines Theater, uh, and we're making about 30 minutes into the film when my phone goes off. Now, just so you know, my phone was on vibrate, okay? But I, I look down, and it's my wife, and immediately I have a decision to make. Which do I value more, Star Wars or my marriage? So I take the call, and in the background, I can hear screaming. Not a good sign. And my wife informs me that as she is going uh, to the doctor's office, as she's leaving the house, she falls down the steps, and she's hurt her leg, really hurt her leg. Not only that, she was carrying our youngest son, Tommy, and when she went down, he went down, and he's hurt his leg. She thinks it's broken, hence the screaming. So we finished the movie. No, we, we rush home, um, and six, seven hours later that day, ER visits, doctor's visits, x-rays taking, cast set, a couple thousand dollars worth of bills in my hands, we go home. That was a bad day for the Cornish family. I have no problem telling you that. Life is tough. Life is tough. Pain is common to humanity. It's just one of those things. If you're not in a storm right now, I guarantee you, just wait. One is coming. It's just the way life works. Now, your storm may be a storm of relationships. Maybe you're sitting here next to your spouse this morning. In the back of your head, there's that question mark. Will our marriage make it another year? I don't know. And then there are those family Christmases or those family times that gets together and something was said. Maybe you said them and well, we haven't spoken to that side of the family since. And then there are the storms that relate to our health. We get that call from the doctor's office, the tests are back, and it doesn't look good. Maybe you've discovered that uh, one of your children has maybe a physical abnormality of some kind, and life as you imagine it to be is simply not what you had planned. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Love ripped from your life, leaving a gaping hole that never seems to go away. And, and then on top of that, there are the financial storms, right? You know, I keep changing my address, but the bills keep finding me. I don't know why that is. You know, the struggle to try to make ends meet, debt piles up, maybe a medical emergency, the stock market collapses, retirement funds lost, maybe mismanaged, a house being threatened to foreclose. Storms have a way of finding us. So here's the question that I want to talk about this morning. In your distress, what do you do? In your distress, what do you do? Take your Bibles and turn to Jonah chapter 2. Uh, you just heard that passage in its entirety. Um, this is part two of a four-part series Let's do a quick recap. Jonah was an Old Testament prophet. God told him to go preach to the Ninevites, and Jonah said no. Now, he had good reason. They were barbaric people. They would probably just as much torture him as listen to him. 
So he hops on a ship running the other way. He runs from God, but God in his love won't let Jonah go. So God sends a storm as a way to call him back to himself. But Jonah, because he's so stubborn, he would rather die than obey God. So he goes overboard. And that's where our passage picks up this morning. So look at verse 3 of chapter 2. It says, You hurled me into the depths, into the heart of the sea. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Verse 5, The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed would wrapped around my head to the roots of the mountains. I sank down. Jonah thought he wanted to die, but now he is dying. There's no air. His lungs are on fire. Darkness is setting in, and he comes face to face with death. In your distress, what do you do? Now, this whole chapter is Hebrew poetry. It's a song that Jonah composed in reflection upon his time. And we're going to walk through this passage, and we're going to draw a few life applications from it that I hope is helpful this morning. Now, I'm going to be honest. As I, as I evaluate my life and I look back, um, I've never gone through something that I would consider tragic. Not in comparison of what I've seen other people go through and what I've seen families in this church go through. So I'm a novice when it comes to pain. I know just a little bit. And so many of you could probably preach this way better than I could. So I apologize for that. And I'm going to try to do my best in handling the text and letting God's truth speak to us this morning. In your distress, what do you do? Well, number one, remember that a storm doesn't always mean a mistake. A storm doesn't always mean a mistake. You see, as Christians, a lot of times we have this this idea in our head that good things happen to good people. God blesses the righteous. We have this idea that if we go to church, we're a good Christian, we give money to the church, we serve, then God will make all of our problems go away. And it's, and it's a silent agreement. It's a hidden deal we have with God. How do I know we have it? Well, I tell you what, whenever I was having that bad day back at Christmas, there was more than one time I said to God, God, if you really loved me, we would not be going through this right now. And that's confession time. I wish my faith was stronger than what it was. I call this principle um, Christian karma. It's, it's that idea, karma being that Eastern religion doctrine that what goes around comes around. You know, good things happen to good people. Now, we translate that into Christianese, and we say that God makes good things happen to good people. But when the storms of life come, and they do, it forces a question upon us. Whoa, why the storm? And we tend to think one of two things. Either God is not good, or maybe we're not good enough. Now, we'll talk about the first one in just a second, okay? We'll postpone that till later in the sermon. But let's talk about that one. Maybe I'm not good enough. What we think is we're faced with this trial, this storm, and we're thinking to ourselves, is, this, is God out to get me? Did I make a wrong turn? Did I miss God's will? Somewhere? 
Now, for Jonah, that's exactly what was going on. Jonah was running from God, and God sent this storm as a way of calling Jonah back to him. God, like a good parent, will use difficult circumstances to discipline his children. Jonah was in a a divine timeout, so to speak. But for most of us, for most of our storms, that's not what's going on. So what is? Why the storms? Well, there could be several reasons. And here's the most popular one that I find common. A lot of times the storm happens to us because of other people's sin or mistakes. Think about it with me. When Jonah was in that boat, taking that trip with those sailors, they were experiencing a storm together. Now, what did those sailors do to deserve that storm? Absolutely nothing. It was Jonah's fault. And so they were suffering in the same boat that Jonah was. And I look through life, and and when I look at the storms in people's lives, you know, sometimes it was simply the fact that someone chose to drink and drive or text and drive. That's why the automobile accident happened. Maybe your spouse was unfaithful to you. And you weren't perfect, but you certainly didn't deserve that divorce. And in those circumstances, the children are the most innocent of victims. They go through a difficult time because of the actions of others. Sometimes the storm happens because you're doing something right. Satan has it out for you. You're in the midst of spiritual warfare, and sometimes Satan uses ungodly people to bring the fire down upon you. Jesus promised us that we would be persecuted. If they persecuted him, they're going to persecute my disciples. That was Jesus' logic. And today, we live in a society, increasingly, that if you follow your conscience, you just might get persecuted for it a little bit. Sometimes the storm happens because God wants you to grow spiritually, or maybe use you to help someone else grow spiritually. Um, One of the facts about storms is that they have a way of driving us to our knees to seek God. And we do that in the storms way more than when everything's going well. That's just a fact about life. God's goal for us is that we learn to become like Jesus, and sometimes the only way to make that happen is through the storm. Let me give you an example. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul tells us that one of the reasons, uh, one of the things we can learn the storm is that God comforts us in our troubles so that we can learn how to comfort others in their troubles. Sometimes you learn by being in the school of life. Sometimes the storm happens because God has a, a greater plan. Now, that just sounds ambiguous, so let me put some, some, some legs on that. In John chapter 9, there was a man born blind from birth, and Jesus and his disciples come across him. And once again, we have the idea of Christian karma popping up. The disciples look at the man blind from birth. Now, you think you have problems? This man had problems. He literally lived day by day at the mercy of others. The disciples see him and they say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Whose fault was it? And Jesus disintegrates their worldview. He says, neither. He says, this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, this man had been born blind so that one day a young Jewish rabbi 
would walk by, see him, have compassion on him, place his hands on him, open his eyes, and reveal to the world he was God's Messiah. Sometimes, sometimes we never get a reason why the storm. And these are the the most difficult cases because no explanation can even seem close enough to balance out the pain that we've experienced. I think of the Old Testament character Job. Job is a long book, but nowhere in those 40 chapters does it ever say that Job found out why he went through what he did. Sometimes we never know this side of heaven. But a storm doesn't always mean a mistake. So the point is, don't beat yourself up. Don't go down the rabbit hole of going, if I'd only fill in the blank. Instead, I find it helpful to ask a few key questions. Number one is, why am I here? If we can find out, why am I here? Number two, God, how should I respond Number three, what can I learn? In your distress, what do you do? Number one, a storm doesn't always mean a mistake. Here's number two. Remember, a storm doesn't negate God's love for you. You see, when you're in the abyss and you're trying to grab onto handholds and they're all breaking away and you're slipping down into darkness, it's easy to go, where's God? I mean, God says he loves me, and if this is love, I'll pass. Once again, confession time. I've been there. I've said those words. But the truth is, we cannot determine God's love for us based on our circumstances. And Paul teaches us this in Romans chapter 8. He says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or demons, nor the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul drives a line, and on this side he puts all our circumstances, and on this side of the line he puts God's love, and he says this doesn't change that. So when we're tempted to say, where's God? I encourage you, look at the cross. Jesus proves that in our pain, God doesn't just sit idly by, indifferent. No, Jesus entered into our world. He took on flesh. He became one of us, walked in our painful world. He took our sin upon himself. He hung in agony between two common criminals, taking the full force of evil upon himself. All the darkness, all the grief, all the despair. And by his resurrection three days later, he declares to the world that evil does not have the final word. That love wins. The storm does not negate God's love for us. God enters into our pain. Psalm 56 verse 8 says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? We're not alone. Jesus told us, do not fear. Why? 
Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to you the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. Are you worth more than many sparrows? And so Jesus gives us two ideas. Number one is that everything that happens is filtered through God's care. Number two, God cares for you. Put those two together and what you get is that everything that happens in life, either God causes it or he allows it, but either way, we can trust him that he is doing his best for us, even when we can't see it. And that's where faith comes in. It's easy to go, God does not see my pain, my hurt. But if you look at Jonah chapter 2, look at verse 3. He says, all your waves and all your breakers swept over me. Jonah is very aware that he lives in God's world, that God is active in the storm, and we can trust him. Look at verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols, I love this, they turn away from God's love for them. Turning away from God means turning away from love so easy when we're in the storm to seek false solutions. We all know stories, family members who in their pain they turn to drugs or alcohol or illicit affairs or gambling, something to numb the pain just to escape from it. In the storms we're vulnerable and Satan knows this. We're tempted to despair to fix it by any means possible, to right the wrongs. And when we can't, we become bitter or resentful. We want others to hurt like we've been hurt. But these are poor substitutes for the love of God. Only God rescues, only he saves, only he can heal your heart. And that's why Jonah writes in verse 9, he says, salvation, rescue comes from the Lord. So in your distress, what do you do? Jonah came face to face with death. What did he do? He wasn't even sure if God cared about him anymore. Look at verse 1. In my distress, I called to the Lord. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. Verse 7, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you. And how did God respond to this plea for help? Well, he sent a big fish to swallow him up. The fish was not a judgment. The fish was a rescue, pulling him back from the brink of death. Now, I have to stop right there, okay? Because when I say that, suddenly it feels like we, end, we, we, we left the real world and went to science fiction, right? This, this has got to be made up. I mean, who can survive in the belly of a fish? How could he breathe? Those are common questions. I'm glad you asked that. Let's talk about it. Um, you know, I've heard stories uh, from people, um, preacher stories, and it's something like this, that, you know, somewhere off the coast of Australia, someone got swallowed by, you know, a whale shark, and, and later, you know, they survived the encounter, 
And so this proves that Jonah, it really could have happened. And they're trying, and I, I, I get that. They're trying to defend the truth of the scripture. And I, but I don't know if that story is real or not. It kind of sounds made up to me. But frankly, it doesn't make a difference, and here's why. Because I will tell you how Jonah survived in the belly of a fish when you tell me how God could enter the womb of a virgin and become a man. Okay? I believe in miracles. I believe in the supernatural realm. That's one of my presuppositions. I believe that God is active in our world. Now, you may be here this morning, and you may be unconvinced. Um, You still want some proof, some evidence, and that's okay. If you're serious, I would recommend that you start with a book called Miracles by Eric Metaxas. It's an excellent place to start, and I'd love to chat with you later about that if you have any questions. But that's where I stand, okay, that God can do whatever he wants, so I accept that. Besides, even if you could prove scientifically that it's possible to survive in the belly of a fish, you have to admit that the timing of Jonah's rescue was a a little bit uh, more than just convenient, right? So now that's, that's out of the way, let's get back to our text. So in your distress, what do you do? Well, number one, remember a storm doesn't mean you made a mistake, always. Number two is that a storm doesn't negate God's love for you. Here's number three. Here's the final one, and this is the most difficult. Rescue from the storm may be different than you expect. No one saw the fish coming. What a weird way to save Jonah. I mean, you don't hear about this happening often, okay? This is not a common thing. And herein we learn a point, okay? Don't put God in the box to say, God, here's what I need. Here's what you've got to do for me. And if he doesn't, well, then I'm through with God. I'm sure that when Jonah called out to God for help, he wasn't thinking, God, would you send me a smelly aquatic taxi cab complete with stomach acid? You see, rescue was not convenient for Jonah. And it wasn't instantaneous either. I mean, he was in that thing for three days and three nights. Rescue may be different than you expect. Now, for some of us, God may fix the problem. We may get that new job. The test results may come back that the cancer has gone into remission. The court may rule in our favor. And we thank God for those answers to prayer. But often, the form of the rescue does not necessarily fit our agenda. Many of us, we just want the pain to go away. And that's okay. That's just, that's just part of being humanity. We want the problem to go away. But God wants more for us than just a problem-free life. Remember, his goal for us is that we learn to become like Jesus. Because God knows that only when we become like Jesus and fully enter into his life will we ever find true joy, true peace, and true happiness. God is smart like that. He gives us what we need, even if it's not necessarily what we want. I do this with my kids all the time, right? So that's why the questions, why am I here? How should I respond? What can I learn? These are good questions to ask. Because God may be using this storm to help us to learn to trust him moment by moment. And if God just takes away the storm, everything we could have learned goes away with it. And God's not willing to shortcut our sanctification. 
Some of us may be struggling with a certain sin or a certain temptation that just keeps tripping us up over and over and over and over. We are asking God, God, fix me, fix my heart. I don't want to sin like this. I, I, deliver me, rescue me from this temptation. But God knows that if he just flips a switch in your heart and all the temptation just goes away, that you will lose the motivation to seek his grace moment by moment. Sometimes the struggle is good. It keeps us on our knees seeking God. Sometimes God knows if he flips a switch and takes the temptation away altogether, we lick that problem and we're like, well, look at me. And we become spiritually prideful. And worse than that, we fall into the danger of looking down and losing compassion for those who still struggle with sin. Rescue is different than we think. Now, you may be thinking, Brian, that's all well and good, but I need my house. I need my child to be healed. I cannot watch my parents suffer. I don't want to die. And cute theological answers just simply don't help when that pain is wrenching our soul. So let me toss this out to you. God rescued Jonah from drowning that day, but he chose not to rescue Jonah another day. One day, Jonah grew old, got sick, he died, and God chose not to rescue him from death that day. Think of it, everyone that Jesus healed eventually died. Even Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead, he had to die twice. What a bummer, right? In Acts, we see the incredible story of the Apostle Peter. He's in jail, waiting for his execution the next day, and an angel miraculously shows up, lets him out of prison, and helps Peter escape from the city. We love those kinds of stories. We're like, yes, God, do that for me. But we skip over the beginning of the chapter where it tells us that the Apostle James did not get rescued And Herod Antipas chopped his head off. Did James not have enough faith? Did God not love James? No, not at all. He had a different plan. Even the Apostle Peter died by crucifixion just like Jesus. Remember, that's the goal, to become like Jesus. I'm sorry if someone has told you that if you, become, that if you become a Christian, that God will fix all your problems. That just is not true. I don't care who they are and what they say on TV. If you don't believe me, read 1 Peter. The whole book is about Christianity while suffering. So if Christianity is not about God fixing all our problems, what is it about? It's about a God who loves us and wants to share his life with you. And in sharing that life with you, God knows that though the journey is difficult, maybe even tragic, God promises that the destination is worth it. That true joy, true happiness, true love is found in him alone. Salvation is from the Lord. God may choose to rescue you from the storm. He may choose to walk with you through the storm. 
He may choose to rescue you after the storm has vented its worst. Christian history is filled with stories of martyrs who were slain for their faith, killed in the most barbaric of ways, starved to death, tortured. But their hope was not extinguished at death. You see, they knew that death was merely a doorway into the presence of God himself, that this world was not their home, that their home was with Christ. They knew that Jesus promises that one day there will be a resurrection from the dead. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me will never perish even though he dies. Jesus promised on that great day, all the nightmares will be eradicated forever. All the gloom, the despair, the sorrow, gone forever and finally. And that Jesus himself will wipe away our tears of sorrow with his nail-pierced hands. Musicians, you can go ahead and come back up and prepare for worship. Let me close with this story. It's one of my favorite stories from Christian history. It's the missionary story of Adoniram and Ann Judson. They lived during the early 1800s. In fact, they were the first American Baptist missionaries that we got to send overseas. God called them to the country of Burma, which is modern-day Myanmar, over near China. And they got there, and immediately they had work to do, and it was tough. In fact, one of the missionary couples who traveled with them, one of them perished along the way just from the journey. The journey itself took 13 months to get there. They didn't know the language. They didn't know the people. They didn't know the system of government. Burma was ruled by a dictator who would execute people at his whim. They had to build their house and their church from scratch. Judson worked night and day learning the language. But in the midst of that toil, God blessed them with a little child, a little son. But in that foreign environment, He was not strong enough to survive, and six months later, they had to bury him in Burmese soil. So they buried themselves into their missionary work yet again. It was seven years before Adoniram saw his first convert to Christianity. Seven years! Could you imagine seeing no fruit for your labor for seven years? But that one turned into two, two turned into three, and soon after a small fledgling church of about 13 people emerged. Things were going well. But then all hell broke loose. A war between England and Burma broke out, and because they were white, they were viewed with suspicion, Adoniram was taken to what they call the death camp. For a year and a half, they would not let him sleep, they would not let him eat, They beat him, they tortured him, and every day outside of the prison, they could hear prisoners one by one taken out and executed. Adonai would not have made it through that living hell if it wasn't for his faithful wife who constantly, night and day, ran to Burmese ambassadors begging for his life, begging for relief in some way or another, and bringing him food in the prison. And when the war ended, when the dust settled, they went back to their little small church and it was gone. Blown into the wind, all the believers had scattered. They had to start over. 
But as they started over, sorrow came knocking yet again. A plague swept through the country, and Adoniram Judson lost his beloved wife, Anne, and his two-year-old daughter, Maria. And he was alone. It was during that time that one of his fellow church members that he had won to Christ, she was old and about to pass in death, and her name was Maung Shwaba. And she was talking to Judson, saying how she looked forward very soon to seeing his wife Anne and the little daughter whom she loved so well. But then she said, and I quote, but first of all, when I get to heaven, I shall hasten to where my Savior sits and fall down and worship and adore him for his great love and sending the teachers and in Adoniram to show me the way to heaven. And in that moment, Judson got just a glimpse as to why. In his suffering, in his sorrow, God was using him to bring life, eternal life to these people. His life exemplifies that a storm doesn't always mean a mistake. They were right where God wanted them to be. God still loved them. And that rescue takes a different form than we expect. When Judson first came to Burma, he had two goals. Before I die, I want to translate the Bible into Burmese. Number two, I want to win at least 100 souls to Christ. When he died, not only did he translate the Bible into Burmese, the whole Bible, which was no small task, but there were 100 churches filled with 8,000 believers. And it was at that point in his life when all hope was lost that revival broke out in Burma. That people became knocking, looking for tracks, looking for information about this God. More missionaries came to the field and a great harvest came into the kingdom. So in your distress, what do you do? Well, Jonah tells us, call on God. He loves you. He will rescue you. If you're in a storm this morning, I know you're tired. You're exhausted. You're, you're tired of fighting what seems to be a losing battle. But can I offer you just this simple prayer? Jesus, I don't understand, but I will trust you, and I'm hanging on to you. If you're not in a storm this morning, first of all, thank God for that. But number two, know that can change any moment. Purpose in your heart, I follow God in good times and in bad. But more than that, look around you. There are many people who are hurting. Here in this church, in this room right now, all the silent sorrow that no one else knows about. And there are people outside who are hurting. Pray for them. Tell them you're praying for them. Take them out to lunch. Listen to their story. Let them know they're not alone. Let them know that they are loved, that God is alive, and he lives in his church. In your distress, what do you do? Call on God. 
He loves you. He will rescue you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, you see deep into our hearts. You know our pain. God, would you give us a vision of your love? Would you break through our darkness and infuse faith and hope into our souls? God, help us as your church to be sensitive to the pain of those around us. And just like Jesus bore our pain, help us to carry the pain of others. Do what only you can do because salvation is from the Lord. We pray all these things in the name of Christ.